Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. Now, go back and listen to part one of The Mound. What are you doing starting in the middle of the story? That's madness. I'm glad you could join us, and please know that you are welcome regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available in my Google Drive. The link is in the show notes. Moment of honesty here. I thought the mound was a lot shorter than it was. I thought it was only three chapters, and it turns out that it's seven, so we'll be on this story for a little longer than I thought. I thought that probably because when the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast covered it, they did it in three episodes, and it all got conflated in my brain. And if you're not listening to the H.P. LLP, you're missing out on an amazing show. They've been going for 10 years, and they've covered all of Lovecraft's stuff and then a whole slew of weird tales, many of which I've read on my show. I've even read on their show a couple of times, so that's exciting. This chapter does delve a little bit into some racist tones, and it is the position of the Weird Tales podcast that racism is wrong whenever it occurs. Indigenous people aren't savages. They have a civilization, and to claim that you are better because you perceive your civilization to be better than another's is racism at its purest form. It doesn't matter if it was common at the time. It was wrong then, and it's wrong now. I don't edit out the racism or turn a blind eye to it, because to do so would be to do a disservice to those who have fought against and suffered under it, and those who still do fight against it and suffer under it. Anyway, thank you for listening, and let's get on with the story. 2. But I was in no mood for advice, and though Compton gave me a pleasant room, I could not sleep a wink through eagerness for the next morning with its chances to see the daytime ghost and to question the Indians at the reservation. I meant to go about the whole thing slowly and thoroughly, equipping myself with all available data, both white and red, before I commenced any actual archaeological investigations. I rose and dressed at dawn, and when I heard others stirring, I went downstairs. Compton was building the kitchen fire while his mother was busy in the pantry. When he saw me, he nodded and after a moment invited me out into the glamorous young sunlight. I knew where we were going, and as we walked along the lane, I strained my eyes westward over the plains. There was the mound, far away and very curious in its aspect of artificial regularity. It must have been from thirty to forty feet high, and all of a hundred yards from north to south as I looked at it. It was not as wide as that from east to west, Compton said, but had the contour of a rather thinnish ellipse. He, I knew, had been safely out to it and back several times. As I looked at the rim, silhouetted against the deep blue of the west, I tried to follow its minor irregularities and became impressed with a sense of something moving upon it. My pulse mounted a bit feverishly, and I seized quickly on the high-powered binoculars which Compton had quietly offered me. Focusing them hastily, I saw at first only a tangle of underbrush on the distant mound's rim, and then something stalked into the field. It was unmistakably a human shape, and I knew at once that I was seeing the daytime Indian ghost. I did not wonder at the description, for surely the tall, lean, darkly robed being with the filleted black hair and seamed, coppery, expressionless, aquiline face looked more like an Indian than anything else in my previous experience. And yet, my trained ethnologist's eye told me at once that this was no redskin of any sort hitherto known to history, but a creature of vast racial variation and of a wholly different culture stream. 
Modern Indians are brachycephalic, round-headed, and you can't find any dolicocephalic or long-headed skulls except in ancient Pueblo deposits dating back 2,500 years or more. Yet this man's long-headedness was so pronounced that I recognized it at once, even at his vast distance and in the uncertain field of the binoculars. I saw, too, that the pattern of his robe represented a decorative tradition utterly remote from anything we recognize in southwestern native art. There were shining metal trappings likewise, and a short sword or kindred weapon at his side, all wrought in a fashion wholly alien to anything I had ever heard of. As he paced back and forth along the top of the mound, I followed him for several minutes with the glass, noting the kinesthetic quality of his stride and the poised way he carried his head, and there was borne in upon me the strong, persistent conviction that this man, whoever or whatever he might be, was certainly not a savage. He was the product of a civilization, I felt instinctively, though of what civilization I could not guess. At length he disappeared beyond the farther edge of the mound, as if descending the opposite and unseen slope, and I lowered the glass with a curious mixture of puzzled feelings. Compton was looking quizzically at me, and I nodded noncommittally. "'What do you make of that?' he ventured. "'This is what we've seen here in Binger every day of our lives.' That noon found me at the Indian reservation, talking with old Grey Eagle, who, through some miracle, was still alive, though he must have been close to 150 years old. He was a strange, impressive figure, this stern, fearless leader of his kind who had talked with outlaws and traders in fringed buckskin and French officials in knee breeches and three-cornered hats, and I was glad to see that because of my air of deference toward him, he appeared to like me. His liking, however, took an unfortunately obstructive form as soon as he learned what I wanted, for all he would do was to warn me against the search I was about to make. "'You good boy, you no bother that hill. Bad medicine. Plenty devil under there. Catch em when you dig.' No dig, no hurt. Go and dig, no come back. Just same when me boy. Just same when my father and he father boy. All time, buck he walk in day. Squaw with no head, she walk in night. All time since white man with tin coats, they come from sunset. And below big river, long way back. Three, four times more back than Grey Eagle. Two times more back than Frenchman. All same after them. More back than that, nobody go near little hills nor deep valleys with stone caves. Still more back, those old ones no hide. Come out and make villages. Bring plenty gold. Me, them. You, them. Then big waters come. All change. Nobody come out, let nobody in. Get in, no get out. They no die, no... Get old like Grey Eagle with valleys and face and snow on head. Just same like air. Some man, some spirit. Bad medicine. Sometimes at night, spirit come out on half man, half horse with horn and fight where men once fight. Keep way them place, no good. You good boy, go away and let them old ones alone. That was all I could get out of the ancient chief, and the rest of the Indians would say nothing at all. But if I was troubled, Grey Eagle was clearly more so, for he obviously felt a real regret at the thought of my invading the region he feared so abjectly. As I turned to leave the reservation, 
he stopped me for a final ceremonial farewell and once more tried to get my promise to abandon my search. When he saw that he could not, he produced something half-timidly from a buckskin pouch he wore and extended it toward me very solemnly. It was a worn but finely minted metal disc about two inches in diameter, oddly figured and perforated and suspended from a leather cord. You no promise, then Grey Eagle no can tell what get you. But if anything help him, this good medicine. Come from my father, he get from he father, he get from he father, all way back, close to Tarawa, all men's father. My father, say, you keep way from those old ones, keep way from little hills and valleys with stone caves. But if old ones, they come out to get you, then you show them this medicine. They know. They make him long way back. They look, then they no do such bad medicine, maybe. But no can tell. You keep way, just same. Them no good. No tell what they do. As he spoke, Grey Eagle was hanging the thing around my neck, and I saw it was a very curious object indeed. The more I looked at it, the more I marveled, for not only was its heavy, darkish, lustrous, and richly mottled substance an absolutely strange metal to me, but what was left of its design seemed to be of a marvelously artistic and utterly unknown workmanship. One side, so far as I could see, had borne an exquisitely mottled serpent design, whilst the other side had depicted a kind of octopus or other tentacled monster. There were some half-effaced hieroglyphs, too, of a kind which no archaeologist could identify or even place conjecturally. With Grey Eagle's permission, I later had expert historians, anthropologists, geologists, and chemists pass carefully upon the disc, but from them I obtained only a chorus of bafflement. It defied either classification or analysis. The chemists called it an amalgam of unknown metallic elements of heavy atomic weight, and one geologist suggested that the substance must be of meteoric origin, shot from unknown gulfs of interstellar space. Whether it really saved my life or sanity or existence as a human being, I cannot attempt to say, but Grey Eagle is sure of it. He has it again now, and I wonder if it has any connection with his inordinate age. All his fathers who had it lived far beyond the century mark, perishing only in battle. Is it possible that Grey Eagle, if kept from accidents, will never die? But I am ahead of my story. When I returned to the village, I tried to secure more mound lore, but found only excited gossip and opposition. It was really very flattering to see how solicitous the people were about my safety, but I had to set their almost frantic remonstrances aside. I showed them Grey Eagle's charm, but none of them had ever heard of it before or seen anything even remotely like it. They agreed that it could not be an Indian relic, and imagined that the old chief's ancestors must have obtained it from some trader. When they saw they could not deter me from my trip, the Binger citizens sadly did what they could to aid my outfitting. Having known before my arrival the sort of work to be done, I had most of my supplies already with me, machete and trench knife for shrub clearing and excavating, electric torches for any underground phase which might develop, rope, field glasses, tape measure, microscope, and incidentals for emergencies, as much, in fact, as might be comfortably stowed in a convenient handbag. To this equipment, I added only the heavy revolver which the sheriff forced upon me and the pick and shovel which I thought might expedite my work. I decided to carry these latter things slung over my shoulder with a stout cord, 
for I soon saw that I could not hope for any helpers or fellow explorers. The village would watch me, no doubt, with all its available telescopes and field glasses, but it would not send any citizen so much as a yard over the flat plain toward the lone hillock. My start was timed for early the next morning, and all the rest of that day I was treated with the odd and uneasy respect which people give to a man about to set out for certain doom. When morning came, a cloudy, though not a threatening morning, the whole village turned out to see me start across the dust-blown plain. Binoculars showed the lone man at his usual pacing on the mound, and I resolved to keep him in sight as steadily as possible during my approach. At the last moment, a vague sense of dread oppressed me, and I was just weak and whimsical enough to let Grey Eagle's talisman swing on my chest in full view of any beings or ghosts who might be inclined to heed it. Bidding au revoir to Compton and his mother, I started off at a brisk stride despite the bag in my left hand and the clanking pick and shovel strapped to my back, holding my field glass in my right hand and taking a glance at the silent pacer from time to time. As I neared the mound, I saw the man very clearly and fancied I could trace an expression of infinite evil and decadence on his seamed, hairless features. I was startled, too, to see that his goldenly gleaming weapon case bore hieroglyphs very similar to those on the unknown talisman I wore. All the creature's costume and trappings bespoke exquisite workmanship and cultivation. Then, all too abruptly, I saw him start down the farther side of the mound and out of sight. When I reached the place, about ten minutes after I set out, there was no one there. There is no need of relating how I spent the early part of my search in surveying and circumnavigating the mound, taking measurements and stepping back to view the thing from different angles. It had impressed me tremendously as I approached it, and there seemed to be a kind of latent menace in its two regular outlines. It was the only elevation of any sort on the wide level plain, and I could not doubt for a moment that it was an artificial tumulus. The steep side seemed wholly unbroken and without marks of human tenancy or passage. There were no signs of a path toward the top, and burdened as I was, I managed to scramble up only with considerable difficulty. When I reached the summit, I found a roughly level elliptical plateau about 300 by 50 feet in dimensions, uniformly covered with rank grass and dense underbrush, and utterly incompatible with the constant presence of a pacing sentinel. This condition gave me a real shock, for it showed beyond question that the old Indian, vivid though he seemed, could not be other than a collective hallucination. I looked about with considerable perplexity and alarm, glancing wistfully back at the village and the mass of black dots which I knew was the watching crowd. Training my glass upon them, I saw that they were studying me avidly with their glasses, so to reassure them I waved my cap in the air with a show of jauntiness which I was far from feeling. Then, settling to my work, I flung down pick, shovel, and bag, taking my machete from the ladder and commencing to clear away any underbrush. It was a weary task, and now and then I felt a curious shiver as some perverse gust of wind arose to hamper my motion with a skill approaching deliberateness. At times it seemed as if a half-tangible force were pushing me back as I worked, almost as if the air thickened in front of me, or as if formless hands tugged at my wrists. My energy seemed used up without producing adequate results, yet for all that I made some progress. By afternoon I had clearly perceived that, 
Toward the northern end of the mound, there was a slight bowl-like depression in the root-tangled earth. While this might mean nothing, it would be a good place to begin when I reached the digging stage, and I made a mental note of it. At the same time, I noticed another and very peculiar thing, namely that the Indian talisman swinging from my neck seemed to behave oddly at a point about 17 feet southeast of the suggested bowl. Its gyrations were altered whenever I happened to stoop around that point, and it tugged downward as if attracted by some magnetism in the soil. The more I noticed this, the more it struck me, till at length I decided to do a little preliminary digging there without further delay. As I turned up the soil with my trench knife, I could not help wondering at the relative thinness of the reddish regional layer. The country as a whole was all red sandstone earth, but here I found a strange black loam less than a foot down. It was such soil as one finds in the strange deep valleys farther west and south, and must surely have been brought from a considerable distance in the prehistoric age when the mound was reared. Kneeling and digging, I felt the leather cord around my neck tugged harder and harder as something in the soil seemed to draw the heavy metal talisman more and more. Then I felt my implement strike a hard surface and wondered if a rock layer rested beneath. Prying about with the trench knife, I found that such was not the case. Instead, to my intense surprise and feverish interest, I brought up a mold-clogged, heavy object of cylindrical shape, about a foot long and four inches in diameter, to which my hanging talisman clove with glue-like tenacity. As I cleared off the black loam, my wonder and tension increased at the bas-reliefs revealed by that process. The whole cylinder, ends and all, was covered with figures and hieroglyphs, and I saw, with growing excitement, that these things were in the same unknown tradition as those on Grey Eagle's charm and on the yellow metal trappings of the ghost I had seen through my binoculars. Sitting down, I further cleaned the magnetic cylinder against the rough corduroy of my knickerbockers and observed that it was made of the same heavy, lustrous, unknown metal as the charm, hence, no doubt, the singular attraction. The carvings and chasings were very strange and very horrible, nameless monsters and designs fraught with insidious evil, and all were of the highest finish and craftsmanship. I could not at first make head or tail of the thing and handled it aimlessly until I spied a cleavage near one end. Then I sought eagerly for some mode of opening, discovering at last that the end simply unscrewed. The cap yielded with difficulty, but at last it came off, liberating a curious aromatic odor. The sole contents was a bulky roll of a yellowish paper-like substance inscribed in greenish characters, and for a second I had the supreme thrill of fancying that I held a written key to unknown elder worlds and abysses beyond time. Almost immediately, however, the unrolling of one end showed that the manuscript was in Spanish, albeit the formal pompous Spanish of a long-departed day. In the golden sunset light, I looked at the heading and the opening paragraph, trying to decipher the wretched and ill-punctuated script of the vanished writer. What manner of relic was this? Upon what sort of discovery had I stumbled? The first word set me in a new fury of excitement and curiosity, for instead of diverting me from my original quest, they startlingly confirmed me in that very effort. The yellow scroll with the green script 
began with a bold, identifying caption and a ceremoniously desperate appeal for belief in incredible revelations to follow. The story of Panfilo de Zamacona y Núñez, Hidalgo de Luarca in Asturias, concerning the underground world of Zinean, A.D. 1545. In the name of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three different persons and one, true God and of the Blessed Virgin, I, Panfilo de Zamacona, son of Pedro Guzman y Zamacona, Hidalgo, and of Doña Inés Alvarado y Núñez from Luarca in Astorias, I swear that everything I relate is true as a sacrament. I paused to reflect on the portentous significance of what I was reading. The narrative of Panfilo de Zamacona y Núñez, gentleman of Luarca in Astorias, concerning the subterranean world of Zinian. A.D. 1545. Here surely was too much for any mind to absorb all at once. A subterranean world. Again, that persistent idea which filtered through all the Indian tales and through all the utterances of those who had come back from the mound. And the date, 1545, what could this mean? In 1540, Coronado and his men had gone north from Mexico into the wilderness, but had they not turned back in 1542? My eye ran questingly down the open part of the scroll, and almost at once seized on the name Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. The writer of this thing, clearly, was one of Coronado's men, but what had he been doing in this remote realm three years after his party had gone back? I must read further, for another glance told me that what was now unrolled was merely a summary of Coronado's northward march, differing in no essential way from the account known to history." It was only the waning light which checked me before I could unroll and read more, and in my impatient bafflement I almost forgot to be frightened at the onrush of night in this sinister place. Others, however, had not forgotten the lurking terror, for I heard a loud distant hallooing from a knot of men who had gathered at the edge of the town. Answering the anxious hail, I restored the manuscript to its strange cylinder, to which the disc around my neck still clung, until I pried it off and packed it and my smaller implements for departure. Leaving the pick and shovel for the next day's work, I took up my handbag, scrambled down the steep side of the mound, and in another quarter hour was back in the village explaining and exhibiting my curious find. As darkness drew on, I glanced back at the mound I had so lately left and saw with a shudder that the faint bluish torch of the nocturnal squaw ghost had begun to glimmer. It was hard work waiting to get at the bygone Spaniard's narrative, but I knew I must have quiet and leisure for a good translation, so reluctantly saved the task for the later hours of night. Promising the townsfolk a clear account of my findings in the morning, and giving them an ample opportunity to examine the bizarre and provocative cylinder, I accompanied Clyde Compton home and ascended to my room for the translating process as soon as I possibly could. My host and his mother were intensely eager to hear the tale, but I thought they had better wait till I could thoroughly absorb the text myself and give them the gist concisely and unerringly. Opening my handbag in the light of a single electric bulb, I again took out the cylinder and noted the instant magnetism which pulled the Indian talisman to its carven surface. The designs glimmered evilly on the richly lustrous and unknown metal, and I could not help shivering as I studied the abnormal and blasphemous forms that leered at me with such exquisite workmanship. I wish now that I had carefully photographed all these designs, 
though perhaps it is just as well that I did not. Of one thing I am really glad, and that is that I could not then identify the squatting octopus-headed thing which dominated most of the ornate cartouches and which the manuscript called Tulu. Recently I have associated it and the legends in the manuscript connected with it with some newfound folklore of monstrous and unmentioned Cthulhu, a horror which seeped down from the stars while the young earth was still half-formed, and had I known of the connection then, I could not have stayed in the same room with the thing. The secondary motif, a semi-anthropomorphic serpent, I did quite readily place as a prototype of the Yig, Quetzalcoatl, and Kukulkan conceptions. Before opening the cylinder, I tested its magnetic powers on metals other than that of Grey Eagle's disc, but found that no attraction existed. It was no common magnetism which pervaded this morbid fragment of unknown worlds and linked it to its kind. At last, I took out the manuscript and began translating, jotting down a synoptic outline in English as I went, and now and then regretting the absence of a Spanish dictionary when I came upon some especially obscure or archaic word or construction. There was a sense of ineffable strangeness in thus being thrown back nearly four centuries in the midst of my continuous quest, thrown back to a year when my own forebears were settled, home-keeping gentlemen of Somerset and Devon under Henry VIII, with never a thought of the adventure that was to take their blood to Virginia and the New World. Yet, when that new world possessed, even as now, the same brooding mystery of the mound which formed my present sphere and horizon, the sense of a throwback was all the stronger, because I felt instinctively that the common problem of the Spaniard and myself was one of such abysmal timelessness, of such unholy and unearthly eternity, that the scant four hundred years between us bulked as nothing in comparison." It took no more than a single look at that monstrous and insidious cylinder to make me realize the dizzying gulfs that yawned between all men of the known earth and the primal mysteries it represented. Before that gulf, Panfilo de Zamacona and I stood side by side, just as Aristotle and I, or Cheops and I, might have stood. And that was chapter two. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying it. If you enjoy my readings and want to commission some voice work of your own, I'm always happy to take them. I happen to have some free time in the voice acting area of life right now, so I'd love to help. Send me an email at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com and we'll discuss rates. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can join me on Patreon. Every dollar goes towards the show and it has, in the year I've had it, paid for the Pride Month readers, the hosting fees, some advertising, and to get my computer repaired. None of the money goes into my pocket or to buy stuff for me. Full disclosure, one of the things I'm looking into for the next upgrade to the show is upgrading from my Blue Yeti mic to an XLR mic. Anyway, thank you so much to Ambervale, Steve Meyer, Lucas Nicholson, Franklin Jones, and Hermagoras for their support. The show is made better by it, and it makes me want to do better with the show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Please go and get vaccinated if you haven't, wear a mask even if you have, punch a racist in the face, and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one.